Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. One story that we don't seem to be able to forget uh, for one reason or another is the story about Joe Biden and remembering uh, about whether he's an old man, whether he's appropriately president or he has the brain, the memory, the ability to remember stuff that makes him a president. Uh, huge controversy about that, uh, about uh, Biden's team, the conflict between Biden's team and the Justice Department. This is a story that will run and run given the politics of our age uh, and, of course, Biden's age and whether or not he's uh, he's still uh, in the mental fine fiddle to be president. Of course, there's the issue of uh, Donald Trump as well. So people believe he isn't also suited to presidency, at least his ability to remember stuff. One man who's given a great deal of thought to this is my guest, Charan Ranganath. He teaches at UC uh, Davis uh, at the Center for Neuroscience. Uh, he had a very interesting piece recently in the New York Times. Uh, I'm a neuroscientist. It was entitled, We're Thinking About Biden's Memory and Age in the Wrong Ways. He's also the author of a, a new book appropriately called Why We Remember, um, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. And uh, Charan Ranganath is joining us from Davis in California, just up the road from me in San Francisco. Charan, congratulations on the new book. Thank Very you. interesting and, and timely book. As I said, you wrote this recent piece in the New York Times, an op-ed about why we're thinking about Biden's memory and age in the wrong way. I, I, explain what you mean by that or what you meant by it. Well, I, I should just uh, preface by saying that this was the New York Times' suggested title. <laughs> it was a little bit more great. Yeah, we can always blame New York Times editors are, are easy targets, Chara. Yeah, no, they were actually very kind and worked into the night with me on this. Um, but uh, yeah, so the thing that motivated me was uh, I woke up, I saw the newspaper headlines on the fact that the special counsel had said that Joe Biden is an elderly man with a poor memory. So as a memory researcher, I naturally got curious about this. Well, what, what do they mean? What's going on? And so then I looked into the report and it really struck me how there are these misconceptions about age and memory and uh, also some stereotypes and fears about it. And so, you know, when one in six Americans is over the age of 65, I think this is something that cuts across political parties and it was something that was worth talking about. So that was the point of my piece. You know that some people assume that or, or the report suggested that Joe Biden is an elderly man with a bad memory. Um, he is a, a, an elderly man. I think scientifically that's hard to argue against. In terms of your research and your work, you're one of the world's leading experts on memory. Does bad memory go with being older? In other words, the older we get, does our memory decline or is that wrong? I would say that on average, yes, absolutely. Uh, but the reasons for the memory decline are not necessarily what people might think. So I think when people hear elderly and bad memory, the first thing they think of is Alzheimer's or dementia. And that's what we would call pathological aging. 
but then there are the average changes you see in normal healthy aging and they're different. So in the piece, I talk about the difference between forgetting and forgetting. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I like that. It, it's, it's an important distinction. Uh, we forget with a small F sometimes. And then we forget with a large F. What, what's the difference between forgetting with a small F and forgetting with a large F? Yeah, so this isn't a technical term, a distinction. I just made it up, but the technical part one, of it because I think it gets to the core of your argument. Yeah, and I think it's like I, I wanted to present the technical stuff in a way that I think people can relate to because I think we've all had those experiences where you couldn't find a memory, but you're pretty sure it's there. And then, in fact, it pops up at the wrong time, uh, but it's not there when you need it. And that's absolutely key to what I'm talking about with this lowercase f, is that you may not be able to get all of it or you just can't find the piece of information you need when you need it. And so this can happen with our knowledge. Like I was watching this movie yesterday and there was that guy who was in the movie and I can't remember what it is. And then the next day it just pops in my head that it's Matt Damon or something, right? And then... There's the other kind of, you know, it also happens with like uh, somebody asks, hey, do you remember meeting me two weeks ago or something like that? And, and I would go, yes, I do, but I can't remember where. And, and then later on, it pops into your head. So that would be what a memory researcher would call retrieval failure. It's that, a kind what, could we call that? And with a small h, healthy memory loss, uh, Charon? Yeah, I mean, I think this happens even to young people, but it happens more and more frequently as we get older. That is very, very common. And again, this is just a byproduct of the way memory works. Memories compete with each other. And so what happens is, is that often if you're not in the right mental context, for instance, you can't pull up the information you need when you need it. And uh, I mean, just in case listeners, viewers want to get a little bit more into it. Uh, there's an area of the brain that just naturally changes with age called the prefrontal cortex. And this is an area that basically the changes start you know, around the age of 30, also when you start to see declines in memory on average. And so why this is important is this area is important for controlling the flow of information, including controlling your ability to form memories and retrieve memories. And so what that means is that as we get older, we have more and more of these little lapses where we're not able to get what we need when we need it. And so that's what I mean by this lowercase f. And it has to do not necessarily with the memory itself, but your ability to use what's in memory. And then the big F is something when we forget with a big F, is that something that we should be worried about? Uh Sometimes, but usually not. So again, everybody forgets with the big F too. So for, when I say forgetting with the big F, what I'm talking about is this idea that the memory isn't there at all. Maybe it was never really adequately formed in the first place, or maybe it just uh, faded away over time and so there's nothing there. And so again, this happens to everybody at any age about... Uh, according to some of the earliest estimates of this, that you know, within about a day, 60% of the details of things that we've learned could be lost. So this happens to everybody. There's nobody who has been reported who really deviates from this much. So that said, um, uh, when you get older, this happens more often too, but it's not that often. And it tends to be the kinds of things like, 
um, you know, you met someone at a party like a month ago and they come up to you and you're saying, they say, Hey, do you remember meeting me? And you're just like, I don't remember meeting you sometimes. And that also has to do often with changes in the prefrontal cortex, because if you're not forming, if you're not able to focus on, let's say names and faces as well as you used to, that's a very hard problem. You might not, you might just never form a good memory in the first place. But as we get older, the capital F forgetting happens a little bit more often, and the lowercase f forgetting is just very, very common part of life. John, excuse the vulgarity of this question. I mean, the simplicity of it, but some people often imagine memory or the brain like a, a hard disk. And of course, when it comes to smartphones or computers, there's a limit to what it contains. Is that one way of thinking of it are, are some brains designed differently so they can hold more memories uh, uh, there are lots of books about memory palaces and some people who have remarkable feats of memory is that because their brains are bigger clever or because they store their information and i use that term carefully given our information economy they store their information intelligently uh, yes there's a lot in the question there and uh, all great questions so uh, part of it, I think the first part is the idea that we have this limited capacity of memory. And one of the things that you learn about is that the, the brain is not like a hard drive in many, many ways. So first of all, there's a lot of economy, as you mentioned, in the way we form memories. We reuse a lot of information that we already had. So the brain is optimized not for taking in everything the way you would put in a photo on your hard drive but it's really more optimized towards getting the most new, important and informative uh, um, stuff that we experience. And so that's a big difference right there. And that's why we don't necessarily hit these capacity limits and why we can learn so much while using so little power, so to speak, uh, um, relative to a machine. So, you know, average estimates suggest that a human brain uses only 20, you know, 10 to 20 watts per day or something. So you can uh, run that relative to light bulbs, for instance, we're not doing too bad. So uh, anyway, but that's the capacity issue. And then you brought up the, the important point about how some people seem to have these exceptional memories. And we do know that people can have an exceptional degree of memory for detail in some particular area of life. So there's people who are so-called, they have what's called highly superior autobiographical memory meaning that you can tell them about something, you can give them a date from two years ago, like February 18th, um, uh, 2022, and they'll be able to tell you what day of the week it was, and they'll be able to tell you what you ate, what they ate for breakfast. But if you ask them to memorize just arbitrary information, they're no different than anyone else. Yeah, and I found those kinds of people tend not to be particularly interesting, or at least don't have very interesting views of the world. <laughs> well, it's it, what what I find fascinating is is that even despite the, that incredibly detailed memory, they're not necessarily happier or way more successful than anyone else. It just seems like they have this extraordinary ability. Yeah, I mean, in they have it often in, in in weird ways. Like passionate supporters, followers of a sports team can remember every game, every date, every score, every scorer, but they can't remember anything else. 
Yeah, and this, I think, speaks to what you were talking about with other things like the memory palace, for instance. So if you look at, uh, there's people who are called memory athletes who go into competitions and they can memorize gigantic amounts of information. Like uh, there's one, I think her name is pronounced Yenya, who was from is from Sweden and uh, memorized the entire IKEA catalog. And so, oh my God, can you imagine I, how boring she is? <laughs> she's actually pretty interesting if you see her at a talk show, but that's Even more definitely boring than actually. I, I guess that's better than I'd rather spend an hour with her than an hour in an IKEA store. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Although, from a memory perspective, IKEA, there's there's some interesting things about that we can. Although, becoming to. you know that movie, becoming uh, John Malkovich, where people get to navigate through his brain. I'm not mm -hmm. sure I'd want to navigate. I wonder whether it'd be worse to navigate through her brain or have to walk through an Ikea store. Yeah, we actually have a study of memory for places that where we're going to use an entire virtual reality recreation of Ikea for this because it's going to be hard for people. <laughs> yeah, that's the punishment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, uh, you know, these uh, memory experts, what they do is they have strategies like uh, what you talked about as the memory palace. So the memory palace is a name for something uh, Greek. I think it was Simonides or something. There was a Greek uh, person who first wrote who wrote about this. It's basically it used to be called the method of loci. But the idea is, is that you take a place that you already know, like, let's say your home. And you imagine for anything that you're trying to memorize, let's say the most arbitrary information, you put that in one of the rooms in your so-called memory palace, like your memory for this house that you have. And you can do this then for, you know, point by point by point and walk through your house and put different pieces of information mentally, so to speak, in different rooms. And so what happens is, is then when you want to recall the information, you recreate that walk and you can pull out all those numbers in order. And so somebody who's really skilled with this can do things like memorize pi to like, you know, way far out. Um, uh, and so that's one strategy. People can use stories as another, but you'll see in a lot of memory athletes. But what's interesting is you see interviews with these memory athletes and I've never seen one yet who says I'm so much smarter than anyone else. They all say, I'm just like anybody else, but I just learned these skills and I just worked on them and I applied. Right. Them. It's interesting, memory athletes and memory athletics. Some people believe that it's it's good for you, just as working out is good for you. I'm reading a book about the English broadcaster Alistair Cook, who wrote and broadcast his Letter of America for 60 or 70 years, a remarkable athlete intellectually. Um, one of the explanations was why he remained so productive throughout his life was that he was a memory athlete when he was in his later 80s and early 90s. He would uh, memorize entire plays by Shakespeare and remember them as he was falling asleep. Is, is this, um, I mean, I'm sure these things are true, Charan, but is that good for your mind? Is memory athletics as mentally healthy as the equivalent of, of running a, a marathon or going to the gym every day? Uh, I mean, in terms of memory, we know that doing aerobic exercise is a very good thing for memory. Uh, most of the data supports that. There are some exceptions, but most of the data supports that. It's been very well extensively investigated. Training memory, there's just not that much known about it. What often happens is people become skilled at doing some particular thing, right? So in other words, if I try to 
if I want to memorize the phone book, that's not necessarily the best strategy. The strategy that I use for that isn't necessarily going to be the same as the strategy I use for remembering where I parked my car at Disneyland or something, right? So there are these specific skills. And um, whether or not learning those skills is good for you, I suspect there's probably some benefit to it because once you get in the habit of automatically engaging these skills, there are some general benefits in terms of probably focusing your attention on what's currently important um, and just getting in the habit of using strategies. But I don't think it's necessarily something that will keep you from mentally aging, so to speak. It'll mainly keep you, allow you to make the most of what you have. Um, but you know, just as an aside, these things that we're talking about, about these specialized memory skills, I believe that everyone has this in everyday life. Um, you can certainly see this in professional athletes like basketball players and hockey, where people have to move very quickly uh, and think. There's that old matter. argument about the puck. That yeah. I don't go where the puck is. I go where it will be. And I guess that's a, a form of memory. That's absolutely a form of memory. And it's utterly related to memory for past games. And this is a big thing is that the reason we remember the past is really to be able to understand what's happening now and try to predict what's happening that's going to happen. And so if you look at people like um, uh, the big, the best example is LeBron James. People can go on YouTube and see this, you know, he's the greatest scorer in NBA history. And he can recite play by play all of these games that he's played in where it's like you can actually show the video of the game next to him. And it seems like he has this photographic memory but it's mainly applied to things that he competes in. But he has such an intricate knowledge of the game that allows him to form these organized memories of his and rapidly do it and rapidly analyze what's happening on the court and form these exceptionally detailed memories in real time, just as a memory athlete can do it with the method of, with the memory palace technique. Is, uh, and, and I'm gonna take a break in a second, Sharon, but let's go back to Joe Biden. Is Joe Biden the the LeBron of uh, of politics? He's been in it fifty years as well. Seems to know where the puck is going to go. Is that one way of thinking about his memory and this whole debate about whether he's suited mentally to being president? Well, you know, one of the things that I've I feel like one of the things about being a scientist is you learn some humility. <laughs> and so I don't know enough about Biden him, you know, Biden's specifics to say how he's functioning. And I think that's something that would require, you know, a real extensive workup. Um what I can say is is that there's some things that change with aging like what we talked about in terms of this kind of lowercase forgetting becomes very, very common. And, and you can see this in, in the special counsel's report. And likewise, you can see it all over Trump's behavior too. But the important thing is, is that there's other things like semantic memory, which is your knowledge about what's what's relevant. And you know that doesn't change with age. And like you said, someone like Biden has so much experience, he really has a knowledge about everyone and you know who he's working with and negotiating with. He has a knowledge of all the leaders of these countries. And I think that's very important. Well, I remember the break, Charan. I've done so many shows that we have to take a break now, even if I'm losing my mind. Uh, and I want to thank our friends at Liberties. Excellent new quarterly uh, about culture and politics uh, for helping bringing us such high quality guests as Charan uh, Ranganath, the author of Why We Remember. Take a short break now. 
And then we'll be back with Charan to talk more exactly about why we remember and how intimately it's bound up with our identity. So don't go away, anyone. Don't forget where we are. <laughs> Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Charan Rangana, PhD, the author of Why We Remember, important, intriguing new book, especially in our age where we seem obsessed with mental athletics of one kind or another. Uh, Charan, in the book, are you suggesting that our memories are selective and they may reflect our identity? Uh, what comes first, our sense of who we are or our memories or are those indistinguishable? I feel like it's a constant process of interaction between the two. Um, one of the things that we know is, is that uh, people, children, uh, or I should say during the first two years of life, uh, humans don't develop episodic memories that are resemble the way adults do. In other words, they don't have memories for their life experiences, their events. Um, and even during three to four, it's kind of fragmentary. So during that time, a child's sense of self is also developing. And what you tend to see is, is that uh, as the sense of self becomes more and more, uh, uh, I shouldn't say it's firmed because it, it actually continues to change throughout life. But as it becomes more uh, solidified, what happens is, is that people develop more and more of an ability to remember their experiences from a first person perspective and also to be able to imagine the future in a way and envision what could happen um, in their own lives. So, Charan, are you does this suggest and, 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 and we're getting into metaphysics here, I guess, in some ways, that we're not quite born with the the empty slates that John Locke suggested we were, that we may come pre, that our, our brains are already in some odd way programmed even before we experience the world. And it may explain, for example, why children remember, their brothers and siblings remember entirely different childhoods, even if they're twins, depending on perhaps the wiring of their brains. Well, this, the nature-nurture uh, um, debate is kind of this giant bog intellectually in terms of like, it's very hard to wade yeah, through that. Dragging you into that bog. Yeah, but what, what I could say about this is, is that if you look in the literature, basically genes express themselves in, in a, I mean, you can only understand the operation of genes in most cases through its the environment that someone's in. So it's always this complex interaction. And I was talking to a personality researcher last night who was uh, telling me all about how essentially there are these genetic aspects of personality, but the way it manifests depends on the environment that a person is in. Now, you brought up this idea of siblings having different memories. And I think part of that is, though, we all remember in a way that's based really on imagination. So when we remember the past, what happens is you pull up little bits and pieces of kind of the sights and the sounds and maybe feelings 
things you thought about. And then we build stories around them. So we imagine how the past could have been. And we typically do that based on our own perspectives and our own beliefs. So if you believe your older brother's a jerk, maybe you remember things in a way that makes him look a little bit less favorable, right? And if you believe that you are a very righteous person, you might remember things that you've done in a way that makes you look better. And actually, a lot of people tend to have a bias to remember their own actions more positively. Um, so I guess what I'd say is, is that, and I, another point in terms of this nature-nurture thing is, <clears throat> Some animals, most animals really, are, you know, go into maturity very, very quickly and their brains settle into their adult state very quickly. But humans have this prolonged period of maturation. I mean, the prefrontal cortex itself is still changing its wiring up till, you know, early adulthood, really. So uh, humans are constantly, you know, the human brain is really designed to shape itself around the social environment that it's in and is the brain a reflection of that so there's historians have been arguing for generations about whether or not there was such a thing as childhood in the middle ages in the pre-modern age but certainly we've increasingly begun to think of childhood being extended through modernity now more and more 20 somethings and 30 somethings live at home and seem to still be developing or evolving um does that manifest itself in memory and this working out of of our identities that's a great question i don't know the answer you're you're talking about i mean just to make sure i understand the question the question is essentially as now we're seeing more and more children living with their parents and not kind of leaving the house in well, the extension yeah Ch childhood seems to have been extended more and more you used to go to work when you were 12 or 14 now sometimes you stay in college till your mid-20s or 30s and mm -hmm. if if as you were saying earlier that the brain or the memory sort of evolves through childhood does that manifest itself in terms of memory in a longer way because culture is different today well what i would say is is that my belief and again this isn't based on data per se although it's slightly based on on my understanding of the way memory changes with age is that the ecology of memory is very important and what i mean by this is i think that the way our brains developed are based on a way in which probably humans have interacted socially for most of human existence so you have this long period of child development where there's not really much of a prefrontal cortex but children in a human you know young children especially are learning more in a freeform way through play and exploration to try to understand each other and understand the culture then you get into adulthood and especially you know in our early past who knows it probably was the case that people were having children fairly early in adulthood and what you see is is that the prefrontal cortex is functioning great memory is going at its peak so to speak and then after 30 people's fertility tends to go down and you have uh you know this drop in memory this increase in forgetting with the lowercase f and i think in traditional societies what you see is that older adults are playing this role as elders where they're actually teaching the children it's more life is more about 
sharing the memories they already have as opposed to building all these new memories. And so often there's a mismatch, I think, between the way we live now and the way our brains probably evolved. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important and interesting question. The subtitle of your book is Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Of course, what matters is very subjective. In our therapeutic culture, uh, Charon, a lot of therapists are in the business, it would seem, uh, my understanding with lots of conversations on this with previous guests, of unlocking memories of hurt, of pain. When it comes to pleasure and pain and, and remembering, do children tend to remember or forget extremes of pleasure and pain? The, the logical assumption is that often when they see something terrible or experience something terrible, they'll forget it. But it, it seems as if sometimes they perhaps over-remember it and, and, and that's the job of contemporary therapy. Yeah, I think this is true of children and adults. Basically, the brain is optimized to pick up not everything to pick up, but rather to pick up what's biologically important. And so just if you think about the chemicals in the brain that promote plasticity, they're chemicals that are released in large amounts during moments that are biologically important, meaning times of fear, times of stress, times of desire um, or reward. Uh, times of, you know, relation to attachment is another one. So these are going, these factors are going to promote uh, memory that emphasizes the highs and the lows as opposed to the mediums. And so there's this general idea that people have, I think that it's like, if you experience something that's so traumatic, it'll automatically be shut down to the deepest aspects of your unconscious. And that's absolutely not true for most people if anything they remember these things too much and yeah it's it's you, you hear these stories of men who fought in the first world war who come back and never speak about it or people who lived through the holocaust but the fact that they don't speak about it to their friends or their family doesn't mean that they've forgotten it presumably. no and, and sometimes it means that it really affected them too much to share it so when i used to work in the clinic a lot of what you process are not just memories of trauma, but memories that people haven't shared before. And that big part of that therapeutic process was actually sharing the memory and changing people's perspective on it because people have a lot of shame associated with many of these traumatic memories. And so, but the interesting thing about therapy, and this doesn't seem unique to therapy. I think this can happen in Alcoholics Anonymous. This can happen through groups of close friends is the act of sharing a painful memory in and of itself, you tailor your story based on what you, you know, what we're working on, which is think of helping them. And so what happens is, is that in and of itself transforms the memory a little bit. And then I reflect back my experiences and then that also can transform the memory because now the memory contains a little bit of you and a little bit of me. So it's now our shared memory. And so, you can get a chance to see your experiences from different perspectives and change the story about those those traumatic memories. Well, let's end with that on the, the notion you're sort of going towards of collective memory. As we live in an age where some cultures seem to remember too much and others not enough. Uh, think of perhaps the situation in Gaza or perhaps in America. We've done shows on reparations, for example, and slavery. 
how does your work and this new book how does it spill over so to speak into collective memory and collective forgetting seems as if in some ways the biggest challenge these days when it comes to the collective memory is for us to all learn how to forget yeah i so there's a whole chapter in the book um not to plug it too much but there's a whole chapter right, in the book yeah, you're, you're on the show to uh, <laughs> Plug the book. That's why we have you. Excellent. Well, chapter 10 is all about collective memory. And so it works from just the basics of how other people influence our memory, but also how our memory interacts with other people to create this larger collective memory of our society or our cultures. And I think what you're talking about here is this notion of collective trauma. And uh, there's actually a lot of work on this topic. I wrote about it and I had to pull it out just for editing purposes. But, um, you know, there's a whole idea, for instance, of restorative justice and the idea that if you need to actually bring out and process the trauma of these um, past events. And so you could see this, for instance, in the Truth Commission in South Africa, where there was a lot of amnesty given to people so that they could tell the stories of these atrocities they committed. And there's debate about, does that make the trauma worse? You know, is it better to just leave the past in the past rather than having these people tell about these painful things every day over and over? And I think one of the trends we're starting to see is a move towards not just unpacking the past. I think that's step one but also helping people deal with that past trauma. So a colleague of mine, uh, Felipe de Brigard, is working right now. He's a neuroscientist, but he's working with people in Colombia to process all of these uh, traumas that came about through this warfare, essentially, between these paramilitary groups uh, and uh, regular people who got caught in the crossfire. And uh, one of the parts of this book, it's called, it's called The Forgiveness Project. And so the idea is not simply to just regurgitate the past, but really explain to people how forgiveness affects memory and give people the option if they want to, to forgive about it. But it's not so much something that they're doing as a favor to someone else. It's really more something they're doing for themselves. And uh, we'll see how it works out. I don't think these are easy questions to tell people how to deal with it, but I don't think forgetting is a good thing. I don't think you want to forget the trauma. I think you just don't want to, you want to be able to experience the past without pain. But, you know, the, even the most traumatic memories are potentially learning experiences. They can be experiences that you learn about your own capacity to survive. They can be things that you realize you've learned from your mistakes and you don't want to make those mistakes again, as in the Holocaust, for instance. You've seen this with uh, the way Germany bounced back from the Holocaust in some ways. So I think that there's opportunities there, but unfortunately, it's often easier, I think, for people to bury their own mistakes or bury the traumas that they've experienced rather than seeing them as opportunities.